for our God is a consuming fire. You know, we have been trying to get back to our series on John for the last month now, but the Lord just keeps taking us in different directions, but we praise God that he's a sovereign God and he is the real host of this pulpit. So we ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Numbers. That's the book of Numbers, chapter 16, verses 31 through 34. That's the book of Numbers, chapter 16, verses 31 through 34. And if you found a sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, God is a consuming fire. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. Numbers 16, 31, 31 through 34. As soon as he had finished speaking all these words, The ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods, so that they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them and they perish from the midst of the assembly. And all of Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up as well. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. In 1858, in the Illinois legislature, there was a race for the Senate of the United States of America. And there was an obscure statute in the Illinois State House that allowed Stephen H. Douglas and to be elected to the U.S. Senate instead of Abraham Lincoln although Abraham Lincoln won the popular vote. When a sympathetic friend asked Lincoln how he felt about this, he said, I feel like a little boy who has stubbed his toe. I am too big to cry and too badly hurt to laugh. You see, Lincoln did not rebel against the leadership or the outcome of the election but rather he ran against the same Stephen A. Douglas and won the presidency years later. You see, Lincoln learned how to handle adversity by accepting the sovereignty of God in all things and at all times. Martin Luther King Jr. once said these words concerning rebellion. Mankind must evolve from all human conflict. He must develop a method which rejects revenge, rejects rebellion, aggression, and retaliation. That foundation can only be found in the method of love. The book of Hebrews teaches us something concerning rebellion in Hebrews Chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, it tells us, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would not be to advantage of you. Pray for us, for we sure have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you all the more 
to do this so that I might be restored to you sooner. This morning, we're looking at a passage which is called in the Bible, Korah's Rebellion. You know, you have to, when you look at the Bible as a whole, you have to look at the things that God continues to repeat and he continues to use as a guide for us. You know, you can look at the Old Testament, you see time and time again, three to four times throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, he warns us about what he did in Sodom and Gomorrah. Also, you can look at how many times from the Old Testament to the New Testament, he tells us, do not rebel against me as you did at Korah. So this story of rebellion, I think, is even more applicable to our day as well. This rebellion of Korah and Datham and Abiram is a story that deals with the rebellion against the authority of those that God had called to lead. Those who were demonstrating the privileges of their role as mediators for God in his priesthood. And there's a lesson to be taught here. That lesson is that when you rebel against those that God has called, you rebel against God's very authority. So the story begins here at Korah, and he overemphasizes one truth to the exclusion of other truths. And you know, you see this time and time again with heretics and cult founders. He claims that all saints in the congregation are holy. All of them have equal access to God and are given the same authority as those that God has placed in the priesthood. As a result, he and his followers demand to enter into God's presence in the tabernacle and give the offering and also uh, deal with the sacrifices there. But we see that God judges them swiftly and shows in the final episode of this story when he ends it with the words that we find in Numbers 17, 12 through 13. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We all are undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? You see, they learn that only the priests may approach God in his presence in the tabernacle and that this process really protected the rest of the nation from death. This passage, I think, clearly shows that unlawful protest, the rebellion against God's authority, will leave those who rebelled in great peril. That was true then, and I believe that is true now. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you because you are a consuming fire. We come to you this morning with bowed down heads and bruised hearts. Our heads are bowed because of our disobedience and our hearts are bruised by our idolatry. We have been disobedient in our call to gather together and not to forsake the assembly of the saints. We have been disobedient in the study of your word when we've had more than enough time to engage in it lately. We have been disobedient in our continual allegiance and reliance upon an unbelieving world. You tell us in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from God, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
Our hearts are bruised this morning because of our clear idolatry and rebellion towards your sovereign will. Lord, we have failed to remember what you said to us in 1 Samuel 15 and 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. We are guilty of practicing idolatry when we rebel against your choice because it's not our choice. For God, you are sovereign and we have no right to presume. Forgive us this morning, renew us in a right spirit in our head and a contrite heart within our very body. We pray all of this in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's children said, Amen. We're dealing this morning with chapter 16 and chapter 17 of the book of Numbers. And we're going to deal with the complaint that was made, the claim that was made, the contest that took place, the very consequences of their rebellion, as, and well as the confirmation of leadership that God has established. We see here that if you look at chapters 16 through 19, uh, that deals with the whole story, but we're going to concentrate on 16 through 17 because I think it demonstrates the centrality and the indispensable nature of the priesthood that God has set up. There's some punishment for the people who rebelled in these chapters, and that punishment proves two points. Number one, that the authority of Moses and Aaron was given to them by God and God alone. Secondly, the efficacy of the leadership of Aaron is shown when he's able to stop the plague and when he's able to put his rod in a special place and the rod buds. It demonstrates the special role that had been entrusted to him by God. Now, when you look at the whole again, you look at 16 all the way to 19, you see a complete theology of the priesthood. You see the divine origin of the priesthood. You see the sacred character of the priesthood. You see the cultic role, the role in culture of the priesthood. You see, above all things, the fact that they're given the function of atonement. Because really, only God is able to atone for our sins. But we see here that it establishes really in these chapters 16 through 17, three stories. Number one, we see Aaron, his role as a high priest in chapter 16, 1 through 35. Then we see the rebellion of Korah in 16, 36 through 50. And then we see Aaron as he halts the plague in chapter 17, 1 through 13. Even though these stories are somewhat different, they have the same theme, they really have the same structure. If you think about it, the first two begin with the people protesting against Moses and Aaron and concluding in a divine judgment, punishing them from God and vindicating leadership, vindicating Aaron. The third story kind of inverts itself. You see that God prompts a test of Aaron's standing, and he ends with the people crying out to Moses. We don't know exactly how long this happened, this rebellion, after the spies came back that Korah mounted this rebellion. It could have happened any time within these 38 years that Israel spent in the wilderness near Kadesh. But there's one thing that starts this story off that gives them the baseless claim that Korah enunciates. We see it in Numbers 15, 39 through 41. 
and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined, listen to this, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. So the tassels were given to every Israelite uh, to remind them that they were holy. And you see, Korah is like a classic heretic. He's going to affirm one truth to the exclusion of others. He has this deep desire for a divine appointment in the priesthood like Aaron and like Moses. His number one complaint, his chief claim is this. All the congregation are holy, every one of them. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of God? You see that Korah was a Levite part of a, that clan. You've got Datham and Abiram and on from the tribe of Reuben. So you've got the Reubenites and the Kohathites. And they both camped on the south side of the tabernacle. Their proximity in their tents explains their mutual involvement and later on their common faith. We see back in Numbers 27 and 3, that there were other members of the tribe that lived close to them, and they're referred to in the second verse of Numbers 16 and 2 when it says, as the other leaders of the congregation. But we see that Korah and the Reubenites rebelled, and even though they rebelled against leadership, the leadership of Moses and Aaron, they had different objectives. In fact, the passages here tell us, because they classified their complaints, their claims, separately. Look at Numbers 16, 3 through 14. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. I mean, we can stop right there for a minute. Here's their claim, here's their complaint, that we're all holy and you should not have any authority over us. Let me show you where he mixed this up. Leviticus 11.45 says, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Leviticus 19 and 2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, You shall be holy, for I am the Lord and I am holy. What is God speaking about here, Pastor? He's speaking about ethical holiness which is not identical with priestly holiness. That's the holiness that gives you the right to approach God in his temple to offer sacrifices and incense. You see, Korah had it all wrong. He wanted to exalt himself among Moses and Aaron. He missed the point entirely. He was not understanding or he refused to understand that being in the priesthood was a matter of God's own appointment, for it is God who exalts. And we see here that his complaint was not just about everyone in the congregation being holy. Really, he frames this broadly so that he might have more support from the Israelites, but he is a person who wants to be part of the priesthood himself. You see the discussion between Moses and Korah becomes incredibly lively 
especially when he tells them, Korah tells Moses, you have gone too far. You exalt yourselves. But what does the Bible, what does Scripture tell us about who chooses whom is going to be in the priesthood? Look at Hebrews 5, 1 through 4. Hebrews 5, 1 through 4. For every high priest chosen among man is appointed to act on behalf of man in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. God understood that the human priests that he appointed were human and had human weaknesses, but he gave them the authority to present sacrifices for their sins and for the others. He appointed them uh, in the lineage of Aaron. As we continue in that passage, look at the actions of Moses as his complaint continues. Look at Numbers 16 and 4. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When, Mo when Moses heard it, he fell on his face and said to Korah and all of his company. Stop right there again. You see, Moses is, is overwhelmed by even the idea of being accused of such a thing. But Moses turns around, he takes that complaint, he takes that claim, he converts it into a contest to prove who has true credibility in this situation. Look at Numbers 16, 5b through 7. In the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Now look at this. Look at the contest. Do this. Take censers. Korah and all of his company put fire into them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. And then he turns right around and throws it back in Korah's face. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. You see, Moses proposes, okay, that's the way you want to play this. That's the complaint you have. That's the claim you're making. We're going to take it before the Lord. And tomorrow, the one that the Lord honors will be the one who is holy. Now, I have to admit to you that I'm a little confounded here because Aaron's two sons had already died because they brought strange fire into the temple. So I can't imagine that Korah would accept the terms of this contest so readily. But he does, and Moses continues with his challenge to their complaint, to their claim. He gives them a compassionate rebuttal, reminding them of God's grace towards them. Look at verses 8 through 11. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the Lord of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them. And that he has brought you near to him and all your brothers in the sons of Levi with you. Now look at this question. And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? 
So he puts it right in their face. Look what God has already done for you. Look at the great privileges he has given you by allowing you to serve in the tabernacle. But you are still trying to seek the priesthood as well. Moses is basically telling them, you need to stay in your lane. He says, God has already separated you from the congregation. He has separated you from the other tribes. He's given you, one, the duty of doing service in the tabernacle. Two, to dismantle, to carry, and to erect the tabernacle. Because remember, it's still mobile, right? Three, to handle all of the logistics. And you still want more. You want to be lifted higher. You want to be in the priesthood. You know, James gives us a warning against people who are like this, who, have, uh, who allow their own ambitions to go further than God has placed them. Look at James chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Not many of you <clears throat> should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. We see here the teacher's then and now, in the early church, was an important uh, place to have, an important call given by God. And there were many who were ambitious to be teachers, uh, ambitious for the status for the wrong reason. Uh, James reminds them, you don't really want to be a teacher because teachers are governed and held accountable by God with a greater strictness. Because with greater responsibility, comes greater expectations from God. We see this again in Luke 12, 47 through 48. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act accordingly to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So he tells them, he warns them, teachers, priesthood, they're given or they are dealt with at a different level, greater judgment, greater strictness. So then a person's words that come out of their mouth reflect their basic character and are really the key to who they are. James emphasizes here that he's not looking for a perfection, but one that can control his tongue will be able to control his whole body as well. That the use of our tongues tells everything about us because it boasts of great things. Number one, our pride our bitter jealousy, all of that causes a misuse of our tongues and that small fire is able to take down a whole forest. Evil speech destroys because evil speech comes from Satan himself. So that means as a leader, we must be held responsible for the use of our tongues, whether in rebellion against God to his given authority to Moses and Aaron or against God's authority as given in Washington, D.C. God is sovereign. 
remember what the Bible says. Number one, God is the creator of the world and the church. He's also, the Bible teaches, that the very government is built upon his shoulders. Romans 13 and 1 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Listen to me. So to rebel against the government unless the government is forcing the church to do something that God has expressly commanded us to do is not biblical. If we believe that God is sovereign, even if our God didn't win, you got to recognize his guy won. And even if his guy won, only to bring judgment on us, then God gives us leaders after our own heart, and our rebellion should be against our own heart. Now we see the Reubenites here. They had a different complaint. They had a different claim. Look at verses 12 through 14. It tells us this, And Moses sent a call to Datham and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come down. It is a small thing that you brought us up out of the land. You got to listen to this. You brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come down. You see, Datham and Abiram are grumbling in their tents, and they're telling uh, Moses, I'm not coming down. And I'm not coming down because I object to this whole process. Now, Think about this. These are people who are being delivered from over 400 years of slavery. Being delivered from Egypt. They are now saying the place of their captivity was really a palace. It was a place that was flowing with milk and honey. And you told us you were going to take us to a promised land and you hadn't been able to do it. They're saying, I think you are incapable of taking us to the place of milk and honey. You see how rebellious their spirit is? And then they throw it back on Moses. Is it too small a thing for you? You also have to be a prince over us. Their belligerent reply here makes Moses very angry. For it expresses, number one, the contempt for the plans of God the contempt for the sovereignty of God, and then their contempt for him. It was a sort of belief or unbelief that condemned a nation to die in the wilderness. You remember what happened in Numbers 14 and 2? And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, What that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? You see, this reminds me a lot of what happened just days ago in our capital. People who knew better, who understood that the claims were illegitimate. And not only the claims, but the means in which they saw, sought to resolve the claims are illegitimate. You cannot rebel against God's authority if you believe he is sovereign. You have to trust him. So Moses says, we've got we've to take this to a contest because these guys are not getting it. Look at Numbers 16, 16 through 19. And Moses said to Korah, 
Be present, you and all of your company, before the Lord, you and they, and Aaron tomorrow. And let every one of you bring his censer and put incense on it. And every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also, and Aaron, each with his censers. So that every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of God appeared to the entire congregation. Here we got showdown at the OK Corral. Both parties have their grievances. They've been outlined. They've had their complaints and they've had their claims heard. And now we're going to see who God considers to be holy. They're fighting for their right to be priests as well. The Reubenites are accusing Moses of bringing them out into the wilderness to die. Just like their faithful spies that returned to them and told them that they could not make it if they went out. They assemble the entire congregation, and what happens? The glory of the Lord appears. I want to revisit for a moment my concern about their memory or lack thereof. Aaron's sons had a similar situation in Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. Now Nahab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire into it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. And the fire came out before the Lord and consumed them. Our Lord is what? A consuming fire. Consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Aaron said to Moses, or rather Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near to me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Can you imagine giving your entire life over to the ministry under God's leadership, raising your sons and they become priests, they follow you into that ministry. And because they decide that they're going to do something novel, something new, something to bring some entertainment and excitement to the service, they bring unauthorized fire into God's temple and he kills them. And then when Moses explains to you, well, you know God says everyone who is near me must regard me as holy. And Aaron did not have a rebuttal. He didn't say a mumbling word because he recognized that they had violated and rebelled against the authority of God. We see here, there's no verbal objection raised by Aaron for the justice of God and the death of his sons. You see, Aaron recognized that rebellion brings consequences. Rebellion brings consequences. You know, there was a pig that was eating his fill of acorns under an oak tree. And he started to root in around the tree. And there was a crow up in the tree, and the crow said to him, Hey, don't do this. If you lay bare those roots, this tree will wither and die. The pig said to the crow, Let it die. What do I care as long as I get to eat these acorns? You see, the pig did not recognize that the result of his actions, if the tree died, so would the source of his acorns. 
that would be a consequence of that. So many times because of our own greed, our own desire, we disrupt, we undermine our best interests and don't, recognize, don't have any idea that our rebellion will result in consequences. Look at Numbers 20, as you were, Numbers 16, 20 through 24. Numbers 16, 20 through 24. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all of the congregation? And the Lord spoke to them, Moses, saying, said to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Datham, and Abiram. So as a consequence, God announces his judgment that he's going to destroy everybody but Moses and Aaron. But then we see their intercession for the people lifting up just the one man who had sinned, the leader of the rebellion. And they point to God's grace and mercy. We see later on here in Numbers 16, 25 and 30, then Moses rose and went to Datham and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And they spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwellings of Korah, Datham, and Abiram. And Datham and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses says, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them with all that belongs to them and they go down alive to Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Moses says everybody's going to die. Men die. But if God does something new and overtakes these rebels and the ground opens up and swallows them and they go down to Sheol, what is Sheol, Pastor? The abode of the dead here is pictured immediately under the surface of the ground. It was well known in Mesopotamian literature at that time. He says that you will know that the Lord has sent me and I have not come on my own accord. Then we see the immediate consequences. Look at Numbers 16, 31 to 34. As soon as they had finished speaking as soon as he had finished speaking. All of these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods, so that they and all that belonged to them went down alive in the shield, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all of Israel who were around them fled at their cry. For they said, lest the earth swallow us up as well. So you see, the consequence 
was a point-by-point fulfillment of what Moses had said. We know later on that the sons of Korah survived this tragedy, but everyone else died. Their punishment was a heaven-sent vindication of the authority of Moses and Aaron. And the judgment from God was swift and absolute. Numbers 16.35 says this, like an afterthought. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering incest. 250 men offering incense. What does Jude 11 tell us? Woe to them that have walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. God does all this to confirm the very godly leadership of Moses and Aaron. Pick it up in Numbers 16, 36 through 50. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, telling, or rather saying, tell Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up. Now remember, stop here for a minute. He's burned up the 250 men who were offering their censers, right? With incense, okay? Tell Eliezer to the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze. They scattered the fire far and wide, for they had become holy. As the For the censors of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be hammered into place as a covering for the altar. For they offered them before the Lord, and they became holy. How did they become holy? Through the fire. Thus they shall be assigned to the people of Israel. So Eliezer uh, said to the priest and took the bronze censers, which those had been burned and offered, and they were hammered as a covering to the altar, to be a reminder of the people of Israel that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company, and the Lord said uh, that to him through Moses." You see, that was already a covering, a bronze covering over the altar. But this was going to be another sign to remind the people of Israel of their rebellion and who should draw near. This was going to be even a greater uh, reminder than the tassels they wore uh, that reminded them that they were holy. Then when we look at verses 41 through 50, but on the next day all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. Man, did, did they just don't get it. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting and behold, the cloud covered it. What is that? The Shekinah glory of God, right? And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came in front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke uh, spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I might consume them in a moment. And he's going to take them out before their false accusation. And what did they do? You know, I, I'm sorry, Lord Jesus. I think I would have just stepped aside and said, go ahead, God, do you. But what did they do? And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. 
For the wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. Man, there's nothing like a pastor's heart. Because you see, he even in the midst of a rebellious challenge, you see the incredible compassion of Moses and Aaron as he compels them into action to protect those who have just rebelled against the Lord. Verse 46. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. The midst means in the middle. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. They already dying. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. And the plague stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700. Besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague stopped. As a result of being these being offered by God, by Aaron, we see here that they were spared. God used this again to show the fact that he was confirming the leadership of Aaron. I think we see a fuller picture in Numbers 17 through 13. The Lord, I'm at Numbers 17, 1 through 13. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, one from each father's house, from all their chiefs according to their father's houses, 12 staffs, write each man's name on his staff and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I will meet you. And the staff, listen, and the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease, uh, thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and all the chiefs gave him staves, one for each chief according to their father's houses, twelve staves, and the staff of Aaron was among the staves. And he put them, he deposited them, Look at verse 7. And Moses deposited the staff before the Lord's in the tent of the testimony. And the next day, when Moses went to the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and formed buds and produced blossoms and bore ripe olives, almonds. Then Moses brought out the staffs before the Lord and to all the people of Israel and they looked and each man took his staff and the Lord said to Moses put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be count, kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings lest they die. Where, did this, where is that staff kept? It's kept in the Ark of Covenant with a copy of the law to be a reminder to us. Hebrews 9, 3 and 4. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, the manna that fell down from the sky, right? And Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant. Verse 11 tells us, thus did Moses as the Lord commanded him to do. And the people of Israel said to Moses, behold, we perish. We are undone. We're all undone. 
everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? We are at a crossroads in this country. Because of our disobedience toward the Lord, because of our challenging of his authority. In our Christian community, we're entering into a very challenging time where we have made a conscious decision to deify a man because of our allegiance to some of his policies. But we must always be careful for whom we choose to worship. There's only room enough for Jesus on his throne. He is the God-man, the man Christ Jesus. Whenever we lift another person to that status, we commit idolatry. And I'm afraid that many of us in the evangelical community are in the process of committing open idolatry. And if we continue to do that, we too shall perish. I truly believe that God is sovereign. And if our guy didn't win, believe that God's guy won, and God may have placed that guy to bring judgment on us all because God appoints all leaders good or bad. So this is a time where we should become incredibly insular as the church of Jesus Christ, building up the faithful on every side, inviting more in, because we're building an ark, because there's a flood that's going to happen out there. We can do nothing to stop that. In fact, I don't even know if that's our call. Our call is to plant and grow where we are and to build up people's lives with the truth of the gospel and the saving grace that only comes through Christ Jesus. That's what we need to focus on. The world has to be the world. It has to do what the world's going to do. And what does Peter tell us? Not the flood next time. The world is going to be refined. How? Fire! So listen, we need to focus on making sure that we know Jesus and we make Jesus known. That we, if we're committed to giving our lives, we're committed to giving our lives because in giving our lives to Jesus, we gain our lives. But that, not that we lift up an ideology or preference, which won't make any difference if God is sovereign and in control of everything. We can't rebel against God's authority. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, continue to remind us of who you are. Continue to remind us of whose we are, that we don't get, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're passing through this place. This place is a fire sale. And everything that is not like you will be consumed. So that the beauty of your holiness will reign once again. You've made great and comprehensive promises to each and every one of us, and you can be trusted. So, Lord, let us focus upon you. Let us recognize who has authority in our lives and who has authority really in the lives of everyone who lives in your world. Let us cling close to you, and let us be assured that we have made the right choice, the only choice, that will ever allow people to live eternally in heaven and to be blessed with the blessings of the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. We trust you. We believe you. 
forgive us for our rebellion and re- give us a reason to rejoice in our heart once again and share with many the hope that we have and why that hope springs eternal. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen.